0: A couple of possible questions to pose to you this morning as we begin, and that's this. What is the strength that sustains life? Is it riches? Is it wealth? Is it the, is it the lies that we just heard about in this particular text? Or so what is the strength that sustains life? And, and maybe I'd like to propose this question. This is a question I asked at the end of 2020 as I, in my last sermon, and that's this. What kind of person... Am I becoming? Change the pronouns just a little bit where you're seated. What kind of person are you becoming? What kind of people are we, the church, becoming? And so as I think about these things, I think that these are the questions, and at least a couple of the questions that Psalm 52 poses. And um, I will say this, uh, these are the questions that make this ancient prayer relevant in the life of the church today, because this is a really old prayer. And so sometimes when we dig into psalms, I know that it may be difficult and challenging to think about why they might be useful, but they are. And then you may be asking this, why on earth are we even incorporating psalms into the life of this series that we're calling MOVE? Um, We spent a lot of time talking about this, so just remember this, psalms, the book of psalms, are a book of prayers, right? Um... And you and I can receive rich information from the Psalms. And I think that even this morning, you're going to receive some rich information from this Psalm. But even more than that, they're not just meant to be read. I'd like to make that declaration. They're meant to be prayed, they're meant to be sung, they're meant to be pondered upon, they're meant to be internalized. And they're meant for us to be transformed by them because of what they are. They're not just prayers for us to occasionally insert in a worship service at the end of a service or at the end of a service. There's so much more than that. And so with Psalm 52, I think you're going to find a rich question, rich questions, if you would, posed to us. After all, it is the great hymn book of the Bible. Jewish people and Christians for thousands of years have used the book of Psalms as their prayer life. As a matter of fact, you might just find the more you dug into the life of Jesus, that the Psalms framed the very prayer life of Jesus. He was very acquainted with the Psalms. On a number of occasions, you will find in the New Testament, New Testament where he quoted them. I have no doubt that in those times of solitude in the morning and silence that he was probably invested in often in Psalms. And so the question is why? Because if If you read the Psalms, here's what you're going to find out pretty quick. They literally express the full range and dimension of the human condition, the human experience, certainly even human emotion. And I think you're going to maybe have already heard some of those raw emotions. Um, Their themes, right? Their themes are shaped by our experiences. And if you read them really closely, you're going to find that Psalms address that which matters most in life. But here's one of the things I love most about the Psalms. They're fair in, the, in this. They express both sides of the conversation of faith. Because let's be honest, people, in church, things aren't always good, right? Things are often discouraging, and we have to have language for those kind of prayers. And so the Psalms articulate both sides of the equation. Um, If you're familiar with uh, the band U2, I'm sure some of you are as far as culture goes. Uh, Bono is the lead singer, pop icon, if you would. He had this beautiful interview with Eugene Peterson, Old Testament theologian who's passed away now. But in this interview, it's this kind older man as Eugene Peterson's in the older years of his life. And one of the things that Eugene Peterson says is this. He says, Bono, I think that one of the things that the Psalms do is it, it gives us a way of cussing without cussing it's interesting the way he says that but he says it with a smile and this gentle look on his face because the psalms express this full range of emotion and if you look closely they articulate speech and they often articulate speech that maybe we don't have words for and so they speak of unspeakable anger and doubt they speak to power they speak of passion. They speak of misery. They are full of complaints of various kinds. There are cries for vengeance. There's praise and there's hope. All of these things can be found in the life of Psalms. And so why do we incorporate it into the conversation of move? Because you and I experience life and we move through life. We transition through life. We have ups and we have downs. We have good days and we have bad days. We experience horrific things and we experience amazing things. And so thus we move, right? We move through life and we move through these emotions and the Psalms help us pray through these. And I'll say this, if you look closely it's not just about our prayer life and about the seasons of transitions but you see it in the life of Israel you see it in the life of Jesus, and you see it in the life of the church. We're on the move. and So if you and I, quite frankly, spend enough time in the Psalms, I believe this, I believe they will give you and I a way, a lens, if you would, to help us look at the world, one another, maybe ourselves, through a different lens. So here's what I'd love for you to do as we look at Psalm 52 this morning. These are just some words I just want you to consider. Not just today. These words are going to come back up, sort of. But pay attention to the context of the psalm. Anytime you're reading a psalm, pay attention to the context. You may have to dig a little bit, but typically speaking, you're going to hear the rage or the praise, and you might be able to guess what the context might be sometimes. Someone may be in utter fear for their life. Someone may be incredibly angry over something. But understand the context. Look for the context. Pick up on themes. Pay attention to imagery. Imagery. Look at the contrast that you're going to find, and we're going to see plenty of those today. As a matter of fact, contrast are key to this prayer, and I think are still key to us today. And then think about the meanings, if you would. So I think as you notice these things, as I notice these things, they are going to help us actually hear the voice of the psalmist. Hear the voice of the person who is writing or who has written this prayer. And in this case, it is David. Psalm 52 is a psalm of David. And so Leslie preached, Les, sorry, Les, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm going to get, I'm going to get it down, I'm, I'll call you Les. Um, Les preached last week on 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22, and he gave you the background. So just to, I'm not even going to recap the whole thing, just to refresh your memory just a little bit. You have a pretty horrific situation in 1 Samuel 21 through 22. Saul is livid. He is furious that he can't find David. He's looking for him. He's hunting him down. And at this point, the spirit of the Lord has already left Saul. And so the voice of God is not even speaking to Saul. He can't even get information from, from, can't get information from the Lord. He can't get information from anybody. But during this time, David goes to see Ahimelech, the priest, in Nob. Because he needs provisions and he needs some help. And so Ahimelech assists him. And there's a character there that we find out. His name is Doeg. So Saul's still furious. He goes back and uh, Doeg says, I know where he is. I watched Ahimelech help him. Saul becomes even more furious and orders the execution of the priest. But none of the officials are willing to do it. And so Doeg steps up and says, I'll gladly take this one for you. And so not only does he do it, he kills 85 priests that day. And then the text goes on to say this. I don't know how closely you listened to this last week or looked at it. He goes to the town of Nob. He kills every man. Every woman, every child, every infant. And then it goes on to say that he wasn't done. He killed the ox, he killed the donkeys, and he killed their sheep. He massacred everyone in that town. He went above and beyond. And then you have Psalm 52. And you have David, who very likely is either feeling responsible or at least some heavy guilt for this circumstance because the fact that Ahimelech helped him led to some of this. And so I think you're going to hear a psalm, which you've already heard it, but I want you to hear it through that lens of the context that Leslie gave you last week. David is brokenhearted. And Psalm 52 fills in some of the gaps that we may have had questions over last week, but here's what I want you to hear. This psalm locates David in his grief. Make sense? It locates him in some pretty terrible situations of pain, but you're going to see him move through his emotions as he wrestles with this. So let's spend some time in Psalm 52. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open Psalm 52. Uh, Phone, iPad, whatever you're using. I don't know what you use these days. If you have a paper Bible, I love it. I love to hear your pages wrestling. I always tease with Tom Connor about that. I love if you have a paper Bible. Use it. Psalm 52. This is probably a psalm that you don't typically go to. Tim Beale and I were just talking about this before we started this morning. I was like, it's kind of a psalm most people probably haven't read in a while. I don't know that you ever have. You've heard it this morning, but it's typically not one that the church goes to, if you would. But it's a necessary psalm, and the more time I've spent with it, the more I have come to appreciate it. And so listen to the accusations against the arrogant in this psalm. This is Psalm 52, 1 through 4. We're simply going to slow it down and look at three sections Because that's how the psalm is broken up. It says this. By the way, notice the characteristics of the lifestyle of the person being described in this text. Okay? Listen to the characteristics. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? And I hope you hear the sarcasm in the text because it's meant to be there. And I don't know what your Bible might say. You might have a translation that says hero. You might have a translation that says tyrant. You might have a translation that says, oh, mighty man, but it is not a hero in the sense that you and I think of. It is incredibly sarcastic. Why do you boast of evil, you tyrant? You big shot? You tyrant, big shot, oh, mighty man, hero. Why do you boast when the steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day? Your tongue plots destruction, by the way. Pay really close attention to the pronouns as they shift in this prayer. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour. So this psalm begins with this really powerful denunciation of Doeg. We know that's who the psalm is about, but he's boasting in his malice. And so I hope that you can hear the sarcasm because of his cruelty. And his cruelty makes no sense in general, but his cruelty makes certainly no sense when it's put up against the steadfast love of the Lord. Why would you boast in this when the steadfast love of the Lord endures all day long? But here's what's also interesting about that statement, and here's why I have it in yellow. Most of your translations aren't going to have this. I'm not 100% sure why they don't translate it that way, but the word in this text is a beautiful word, and I, I promised Dr. Cloud I would pronounce this correctly, chesed, right? It's this beautiful word that means the steadfast love of the Lord, but it's a really challenging word sometimes to translate. But this phrase brackets the psalm. It's at the beginning and at the end. It's really powerful. It says, why would you boast in your cruelty When the steadfast love of the Lord is what endures all day long. So not only is a statement back to his cruelty, it's also a statement about the psalmist, about the person who's saying the prayer. It says a lot about their faith. That person also believes, David in this case, that the steadfast love of the Lord, he is confident that the steadfast love of the Lord is what endures all day long. So notice the contrast between divine faithfulness and treachery, right? Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a razor. You, worker of deceit, you love evil more than good and lying more than what's right. You love all the words that devour. Listen where the adoration is. This is a person who absolutely lavishes in cruelty. Right? Psalm 52 5 through 7. Listen to the divine response that comes up after those conversations. And listen to the contrast right out of the gates. Because this person, Doeg, obviously believes that he is immune and invincible when it comes to the Lord. That he's going to get away with everything that he's done. says this, but God, that's how it starts out. All of this about your tongue, your mouth, your lying, your deeds, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And I highlighted snatch and tear and uproot because they are really, really important words in this conversation. The imagery is pretty dark here. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance. Do you see that part? But trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. This is central to the prayer. This particular contrast. But God, you do all of this, but God, God will strike you down. He will snatch you out of your tent. He will tear you out of your tent. Basically, the text says this, you mighty man, the Lord is going to reduce you to rubble. He will reduce you. To rubble, you will be seized and torn from your tent, and you will be uprooted from the land of the living. And so, not only is he going to be taken care of, but you could also read this he is literally going to be excluded from everything, even the worshiping the community. Because this is temple language when it comes down to tent and land, he is going to be taken away and removed from everything. And by the way, it's going to be public. The righteous shall see and fear, and they will laugh or jeer, if you would. See the man who would not make God his stronghold, his refuge. His imagination is foolish because he puts his trust in the abundance of his riches, not the trust of the steadfast love of the Lord. Right? So when we get into this last part here, this is the third section of Psalm 52, 8 through 9. Look at the contrast or listen to the contrast of the place of the righteous with the judgment of the evildoer. Again, watch the pronouns. But I am like a green olive tree. In the house of God, I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it, Lord, because you have acted or you will act. The confidence of the psalmist knows that the Lord is going to do what he says. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of of the godly. And so we have this contrast of someone who is secure and confident in the Lord's behavior. And you look at the word uprooted. This person is going to be uprooted from everything. And David is saying, on the other hand, I am like a green olive tree. I love that language because the imagery there is pretty significant too. It's a it's a standard symbol for peace and for security in the Lord. And so he feels like a flourishing green olive tree that is securely rooted in the house of God, because, here's your second bracket to the psalm, started out with, right, why would you boast, O mighty man, when the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever? I hope you hear that phrase over and over and over and over again, because here at the end of the psalm it says, I am firmly rooted in the house of the Lord because I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. This word, Hesed is a beautiful word. So the prayer, Psalm 52 begins with this incredible protest to this enemy. And then it ends with this beautiful thanksgiving before the faithful. And he says, I'm going to acclaim you in public because you have acted, O God. Right? I will wait for your name because your name is good. And I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. So I hope this phrase burns in your head from here on out. Trusting in the steadfast love of of the Lord. So, where do you go with this? Where do you go with a prayer that was written so many thousands of years ago, and how on earth is it relevant for us in the life of the church? And I think it's pretty simple to a degree. I think there's a pretty clear message here in that the psalm contrasts two types of people, if you would, right? So, you think about people, and you think about us, and you think about in general the people in the, that we encounter on a regular basis. Human beings have commitments, right? They have motivations. They have a center. They have an identity. Many of you in this room I know pretty well. Some of you I don't know as well. Some of you I spend quite a bit of time with. I know what your motives are. I know where your heart is. I know what your center is. I know where your allegiance is in many ways, right? Because when you spend enough time with people, these things become evident, right? You understand this? We're we're, we're on the same page here. You kind of get this about people, okay? Um, And people live out of, we live out of or operate out of that center. And in this psalm, you have someone who is centered in his own trust and abundance and riches and lies and all the above and someone who has his trust somewhere very differently. So Doeg boasts of his malice. And I have to repeat those words again. He plots destruction. He is a worker. He's a skilled worker. Of deceit, isn't that crazy language? It's not that he just—he, it's not that he just tells a white lie every now and then. Okay, he is a skilled worker of deceit, conniving, plotting, right? He's scheming. He's skilled at it. He loves evil over good. He loves lying over speaking truth. He love, he loves words that wreak havoc on the lives of people. And so you might even say it this way. There, in the life of Doeg, and in the life of many people that we would know on this earth, there is a blatant disregard for the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, maybe something they misunderstand, maybe something they've not encountered before, but there is a blatant disregard. And so Doeg lives out of a very different place, and he trusts in violence, and he trusts in wickedness, and he will be uprooted. But here's a, here's a statement for us, right? Make no mistake about this. You and I, daily, are going to be tempted to put our trust in something besides the Lord on a regular basis. It is part of our story. I can almost guarantee you that you are either coming out of a circumstance where that has been an issue or you are walking into a circumstance where that is the issue. You may be battling it right now where you were trying to figure out, am I really going to sink all my chips into what the Lord says or or am I going to maybe rely on my own condition? We are tempted. Uh, Jesus, think about him in Matthew or Mark when he goes into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. He's tempted with this question. Satan. Who are you going to trust? And over and over again, Jesus refutes that. But in contrast to that particular psalm we just mentioned, um, there is this contrast in someone who does trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. And we come back to those words, motives and devotion and commitments, and they're all located, if you would, in this word hesed, in the steadfast love of the Lord. It's it's the psalmist center. It's his identity. It's found in the heart of God. That person is will live life and operate out of that center, out of the steadfast love of the Lord. As a matter of fact, that person, us, the psalmist, will relate to others out of this center. In fact, people who are founded or centered in this steadfast love of the Lord, they love creation and life, they love goodness, and they have nothing typically but loving speech, words that give life, and rhetoric that is drenched in justice and righteousness. And if you think about it, this psalm, certainly at the very beginning, is a cry out against injustice. And here's what David does. I don't know if you think about it like this or not. What David does in this psalm is he gives a voice to Ahimelech, his entire family, and everybody who was slaughtered that day who no longer had a voice. He gives voice to them in this prayer. And I would say the relevancy for us is you and I have also been called to cry out when we see injustices before us. Those of us who are centered in Hesed, those of us who trust in the steadfast love of the Lord, can't do anything but reek of justice and righteousness. It's part of who we are. It shapes our speech. And so I want to say this, our words matter. This makes sense, right? Our words matter. The things that literally come out of our mouth matter. The words that come out of my mouth matter. The words that come out of your mouth matter. The words that come out of our mouth as a community matter. How we speak to each other matters. How we speak to strangers matter. The things that we talk about, they matter. And if you want a fuller explanation of this, go look at James chapter 3 and look at what James says about the tongue. And how dangerous the tongue can be in our mouths when it's not founded where it needs to be. He even says at the end of that, there's some really bad things that can happen because of our words. And he says, this is not how it should be with people of God. Our speech, our speech is literally spoken through kingdom language. When we are founded in the steadfast love of the Lord. Let me say this about the psalm as we kind of wrap this up. It's this. The psalm begins with a man who boasts of his crimes. Right? Oh mighty man, you're boasting of your crimes and you notice at the end of the psalm he disappears. He's not in the conversation. He's moved on from the conversation. And so here are some things I'd love to say to us practically speaking when it comes to trust. I don't care how old you are in this room. We have some little friends in this room. I see Will back there. He's one of my buddies. Harrison's back over here somewhere. I'm talking little guys. Walker may not be able to get this just yet, but it's not too soon for either one of you as parents to hear what I'm saying, right? If you are a young person, if you are 17 and 16 like my boys are, if you're 23 like Mason, or if you're an old man like Kevin Walker, it is never too soon to consider the question of trust in your life. Never too soon. Parents, begin modeling this with your children early. Where are they going to see you put your trust? In your money? In your riches, in your wealth, in your confidence in yourself? Or are they going to see us be parents who put our trust and we model it as we trust in the Lord? It's never too soon to consider the question of trust. Trust is a practice that grows over time. Brian and I spend a lot of time in marriage education with people. And trust is a big deal in relationships. But you can't just walk in and go, okay, I trust everything you're saying. Right? There's a process to this. And it's a practice that grows over time. And man, as your practice of trusting in the Lord over time grows, you might be just amazed at how that transforms your life. Here's the third thing I think about. You and I will be regularly tempted to place our trust in the lowercase g's, God's. Of this world. I don't. You may be in a fight with that right now. Maybe. You may be there. We're going to regularly be tempted. True refuge is found. In Hesed, And this kind of trust forms us. To be the people who God has called us to be. And here's what I'd love for you to do. Please stand with me one more time if you don't mind. I took the liberty to transform the end of this psalm. And make it more relevant for us with some pronouns and i would if you if you feel so inclined i can't make you repeat these words by any means but if you feel okay as a church repeating these words after me i would ask that you do so as kind of a closing prayer in our time together um goes like this lord may we put our trust in your steadfast love forever and ever We will thank you forever because you are faithful. We will thank you you are faithful. <laughs> I, I feel like we, we, we said it, but right? Like, say it. Okay? Hear, hear this. We will thank you forever because you are faithful. We will wait for your name for it is good. Lord, may we put our trust in your steadfast love. Lord, may we put our trust Church, may we be people who put our trust in the steadfast love of the Lord regardless of what it is as we move forward as a community. That's my invitation for you this morning. Blake.